have your Bible, open it to John chapter 1, verses 14 and on, and we're going to zoom in on this last section. Verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Say that with me. Grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Amen. What we're going to focus on this morning is getting our attention to focus on this final summary of what the prologue was all about, and especially what the book and the Gospel of John is all about. Our attention is focused on God here. John is putting all of our attention once more on the glorious presence on the glorious manifestation of the person of God in Jesus Christ. This is who John wants us to understand. At the end of the day, the work that John is doing in order to write this, as we read in John chapter 20, in order to, to, for us to understand and get this, he wants us to see God. And how do we see God? We see God in Jesus Christ. So that becomes the main prerogative of the Gospel of John. And so in order to do that, let's, let's start backwards. So we're going to focus in on verse 18. So turn with me back to verse 18 so you can see what we're speaking about. In verse 18, it says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. So the job of the Son, the job of Jesus Christ here in the text is to make God known. God the Father. Now you have to think about this a little bit because every child wants to see their father. Every spiritual child, every son of God yearns for the day that they will see God. See, if the Bible is real and we believe that it is, I don't want to put any doubt in your head or in your heart, but if the Bible is real, our greatest hope and our greatest focus from here until we die or until God comes back is to be in the presence of God and seek Him face to face. Here's the thing again. If the Bible is real then one day you and I will stand before God and see Him as He truly is. Think about that. The one that created the heavens and the earth, all of the universe, we will stand before and we will see Him. Right now, it's kind of an eerie feeling. Like, How does He look? Is Is it like a mist? Is it a cloud? Is it smoke? Well, the gospel clearly teaches us that we see God in the person of Jesus Christ and 
Jesus Christ has ascended into heaven, and the Bible teaches us that he stands at the right hand of the Father. So on earth, he is a representation of God, and when we get to heaven, we will finally see him face to face because he's there with the Father. So the, the, the attention then goes to that fulfillment of the heart's desire. We desire to see God. I don't, know, I don't know how much desire you may have this morning. I don't know how much anxiousness you may have to see God, but every child desires to do so because we're kind of sick of everything that's going on around us. There is really nothing else much more glorious. Like, if you think about it, we have self-driving cars, and we're kind of still like, eh, people die in them. I mean, they still get into car accidents. I mean, it's not that much of a big deal. Pretty soon we'll probably see a flying car. Tesla might come up with like a flying car, and people will probably be like, eh, it, it's okay. Like, it's like we don't need to see anything else. But there is this desire to see our creator, the person that made you, the person that knows you, the person that can read your mind and knows what's in your mind. See, maybe not even your own wife or husband may know what's in your heart or in your mind, but God knows, and that's the God who we will one day see. And therefore, John says, you see him in Jesus Christ. Now, this is the posture, because even the, the, the dilemma that John raises up in verse 18 is, is, is a negative dilemma in the sense of we can't see God. What does the, the first couple of words say in verse 18? No one has ever seen God. That's a big statement because we have great Old Testament prophets that stood before us and that were much holier than you and I. I mean, you and I have never called fire from heaven like Isaiah and, it, and like Elijah and it came down. Like, that just doesn't happen. You and I have never heard the voice of God audibly like, like Moses in a burning bush. You and I were never inside of a, of, of a big fish and were delivered by God like Jonah. It, it just has never happened. And yet, John is clarifying, no one has ever seen God. Not even Moses. Not even Abraham. No one. Because that's the dilemma that we've been facing this entire time. We've been separated because of sin. There's a separation between God and us, and that's the dilemma that we, can't no we can no longer see God. The way he existed in the garden is no longer doable or possible up until Jesus Christ comes in. And so Jesus Christ comes in to fulfill this great need. He becomes this bridge for us to understand God, the revealer, the creator. He is the bridge for us to open up our minds and our understanding. I'm going through a Bible study in our Wednesday night Bible study for the Spanish service, and we're talking about the revelation of Scripture and, and how, how Jesus becomes this revealer of God because he's the one that preaches everything that the Father has given him. Jesus himself says, I give you, I did not come on my own, I came by him who sent me. I say what he tells me to say, I do as he tells me to do. So Jesus Christ not only becomes, comes to, to earth to tell us what God is doing, but to reveal us who God is. He explains God to us. Other than that, we would have no idea what God is. 
Or how would we explain God? We don't know or understand the intricacies of this creator. Try to imagine the mind of God. Even Paul says in Romans chapter 11, oh, the great, wonderful mystery. It's, it's profound. It's deep. Think about it. The one who designed and created everything here on earth. Every aspect of human life and human existence on earth and with all the other planets. Think about that. And we, we, we look at people that are smart, like, like uh, even uh, Steve Jobs back in the day, where we was like, how did, he create, how did he come up with the idea of the iPad, or, of the iPod? Or how did these people, like, like Elon Musk that we've been talking about, the Tesla, how did he come up and how did he, he design this, this self-driving car? How did that happen? And sometimes we're like, man, that guy's brain is working at a whole other level than ours. Like, mo most of us can't can eat our cereal without dripping milk on our chin. Like, it, it, it becomes like, man, that's just too distant for us. Think about the mind of God. No one would ever understand it. No one would ever know it if it was not for the bridge, for Jesus Christ. And so, therefore, Jesus comes in to fulfill this great necessity because this is humanity's posture towards God. We can't see him. We can't know him only through Jesus Christ. He becomes the bridge for our understanding. He becomes that bridge for us to know what's in the Father's heart, what's in God's plan, what's in God's will for our lives. He also has this unique position. Look at the, what the verse says back in 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side. The, the, the Greek phrase here is, is more literal and says at the Father's bosom or at his chest, which reveals the intimacy of the Son, the oneness that he has with the Father. This position is critical because only the one who is truly united with God, who is truly one with God, who is truly God, can reveal to us who God really is. It's only the one who's at his side, only the one who's one with him. And this word becomes even more interesting because it says the only God, or, or the Greek word is monogenos, which reminds us of mono, which is one, which is alone. That's where we get this concept of monotheism, which is only one God. And, and this mono word represents what Jesus Christ truly is. He is the only unique son of God. He himself is the son of God. We are all sons of God, but only Jesus is the unique son of God. In other words, there's no one else like him. He is one and only in his class. There isn't other replicas of Jesus Christ. Even though like in the, in the 20th century, we have people like David Koresh in Waco, Texas saying he is the manifestation of Jesus Christ or, or, or Jim Jones who, who, who built Jonestown in, in, the, in the 70s and, and made everyone drink Kool-Aid and kill themselves saying that he himself was the revelation of Jesus Christ. That, that's not true. That can't be because Jesus Christ is monogenos, which is unique, only one in his class. And this unique son... And this unique uh, creation of, of, of God 
from the beginning of time, this only begotten one is Jesus Christ. The one who can reveal us, God. And only he could do it because he's the one that's unique in order to do so. This is his Christological title. You've been hearing a lot during these five months on, on, on these first 18 verses, this Christological concept of, of what God, what Christ is, what, what his divinity is, what his humanity is. And, and when John speaks of, of Jesus Christ, he calls him the monogenos because this is his Christological title. No one like him, he alone is in his class. There's no one else that can be like him. And this is an easy concept to understand because even Isaac, the son of Abraham, in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, we see that Isaac is called the monogenos of Abraham. But Abraham had other sons. So like, how do you explain? Like, wait, did, were the other sons not his sons? Well, yes, but Isaac was the only son of the promise. So that goes to explain a little bit more what this, what this concept means for us, where he is the only son, the only unique son. And the reason why I'm spending some time on this is so that you can understand that only the unique son, only the only God, the only Jesus Christ, only him has the power to reveal us the Father. And my friends, this is the dilemma. How else are you going to get to God? How else are you going to come to God? How else are you going to ever see God if you try to go through it, through him, to him, another way? There's only one way, there's only one truth, and there's only one life. There's only one bridge, and that's Jesus Christ. He is the only one that is fitted to fulfill his job title as the only son, the only unique son. He alone has the power to reveal us God. That's why I love verse 18, and I wanted to spend some time on verse 18 so you understand what this summary is all about and why we've been spending so much time on the first 18 verses. Look at the, what it says at the end. He has made him known. Other translations say says uh, he has revealed to us the Father. What I love about this, what, what I love about this word, made him known, is a Greek word that brings to us this concept of explanation, of interpretation, or of exposition. This is where we get, the theologians get this, this concept of exegesis, because the word in Greek is exogeomai, which means to exposit, to explain. So what does Jesus do? Jesus doesn't just show us God in his face, in his, in, his, in his physical manifestation of his glory. Jesus isn't only a physical representation of this great glorious God. Jesus Christ comes down to explain to us who the Father is. He explains, do you get that? His job title, his job duty or job description is to teach us to exposit to us who God is, to explain to us who God is. We always have, or we always tend to forget this work of Jesus Christ because we tend to see Jesus Christ in the Gospels as this miracle worker, as the one who spit in mud and healed the blind man, and we're like, wow. As the one who said, Lazarus, 
come out of that cave. And Lazarus comes out of that cave all wrapped up. As the one who, who is inside of a house and they open up the roof of the house and they make a hole in the roof and they bring this lame man in, in, into the house and Christ tells him to get up and the guy that couldn't walk gets up and we're like, wow, amazing. The, this, this man that, that walks around loving people, this man that walks around confronting religious people, this man that sits down at the table with sinners and prostitutes, this man that befriends Everyone or all the disenfranchised of the society, this man that we're like, man, he, he is so awesome. He is so cool. Look at him. This is a perfect human being. He does so many things for humanity. But we tend to forget his primary role. He teaches us. He is the teacher. That's why the Pharisees and the, the people that heard him speak were like, wow, this guy teaches with authority. This guy, he doesn't, he doesn't teach from the word of God like these other guys do. This guy brings authority in his preaching, in his teaching, because he's revealing to us God. And that's why the desire for the word of God becomes embedded in our hearts and in our souls, because in the word of God, in the scripture, we see God. We see what, the, what, what Paul learned. We see what the apostles learned through the voice of Jesus Christ, through the teachings of the Son. And so this becomes important for us. As Christians, we're here to learn. We're here to receive God's word. We're here to learn God's word and then put it to action. So my friends, we, we don't come here just to observe and to sit down and just to listen we come to hear, but we need that hearing to develop into our hearts in order to put our feet in action, in order for us to get to move on what these words actually mean. It doesn't matter how much we know. At the end of the day, it's what we do with what we know that makes us Christians. Anyone can come here and sit down and listen to, to the word of God, but it is those who put that word in action that represent discipleship, that represent who Jesus truly is is because this is what Jesus Christ does. This is his role. He reveals to us the Father. So how does he do this? We, we've got this concept in verse 18 that Jesus reveals to us the Father by the teaching. How else does he do this? In this final section, we get a summary of what or how else Jesus does this. Now go back with me to verse 14, and some of this will kind of be familiar with you. In verse 14, we, we get this understanding, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So what Jesus did was come down to be like us in order to do what we could never do, which was fulfill God's wrath over our sinful nature. And we learned about him uh, becoming flesh, what that meant. We learned what it meant for him to develop and to and to tabernacle amongst us, to live amongst us, and to be with us. What Jesus Christ is truly doing in these first couple of words is Jesus Christ is serving us. Jesus Christ doesn't just teach us. He serves us. He puts his hands to work. That's why we see this greatness in Jesus Christ when he's washing the feet of his disciples. It, it becomes a reminder to us, not that we have to physically wash people's feet. I don't know how many of you guys would be down to do that, 
And I know several churches that do practice that, but don't worry, we're not going to do that today. But it becomes a physical reminder to us that he came to serve, that he's here to serve us. That's why he's a human being. He comes to serve us because this is how Jesus reveals the glory of God to us. He teaches it to us. He explains it to us. He exposes it to us. And he serves us because it reveals the grace and love of God. But the word that I really want to zoom in on here so that you understand this is the word glory. Look at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son. There's that word again, monogenos. Only son from the father full of grace and truth. This word doxa, this word glory, that's where we get the word doxology. Because it's, it's when we come together to worship the glorious person of Jesus Christ. This word glory is embedded in the person of Jesus Christ. And once again, it proves to us that Jesus Christ is himself God. Because this word was a descriptor, a way to describe God in the Old Testament. And it goes forward in the New Testament. Go with me very quickly to Psalm chapter 24, just so you could get what I'm, what I'm saying here visually. Psalm chapter 24, the Old Testament presents God in this glorious way. Verse 7 in chapter 24 of Psalm, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors. The King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift up, lift up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of, of hosts. He is the King of glory. This is God. This is the glorious nature of God. This is the manifestation of God on earth. The glory of God becomes the descriptor of who God is on earth. And so this same glory is carried forward in Jesus Christ. What does verse 14 say again? We have seen his glory. Where did they see it? They saw it in Jesus Christ. We have seen his glory. This descriptor is, is the obvious representation of Jesus Christ when he manifests himself here on earth on the Old Testament. That's why the glory of God be, becomes tied with verbs like seeing and appearing and revealing because this is the way people of the Old Testament saw him. Moses, God appeared to Moses in a burning bush. God appeared to Jacob as a man of war in a dream. God appears to the Old Testament saints through his glorious manifestation. This is the glory of God, and it's best expressed through his acts of salvation. So, so get this. God's glory is represented to us in his acts of salvation. God's glory is what saved Israel. 
We learned about this these past three, three to four weeks, that God's glory, that God brings Israel out of slavery, and then the greatest manifestation of this accomplishment comes into that final chapter that we read in Exodus chapter 40, where the glory of God came down on the tabernacle. Once again, foreshadowing what God will do in the future temple, what God will do with Jesus Christ, and what God will do in us when Jesus Christ ascends. This is God's glory. This is who God is. On earth, he is manifested in glory, and it becomes our salvation. In the New Testament, nothing changes. In the New Testament, the New Testament writers emphasize this in the exact same way. And Jesus himself puts these two glories into, into uh, consideration by saying the glory of God and also the glory of man. Every human being wants the glory. We all want the attention. Now I'm not putting thoughts in your head. Maybe you are distinct and maybe you are more holy than I, but we tend to want glory. Man, you did that? Wow, man. Man, you're making six-figure income? Ooh, can I be your friend? Wow, you have that house? Wow, you, you have this amount? You do this, you do that? You're like, wow. That becomes the glory of man. And Jesus warns us, do not seek your own glory. Do not seek the glory of man, because it's in contrast to the glory of God. Jesus puts this in our face so that we understand that as we live, we are to seek the glory of God. We are to worship the glory of God instead of our own glory. And friends, if we're honest with each other, we tend to seek our own glory more than the glory of God. We, we tend to feed our flesh at times more than we tend to feed our spirits. We look for our own pleasure. We look for our own desires rather than the desires of God, rather than giving him glory through our obedience. Jesus says, do not seek your own glory. I, I want you to read that. We're going to read it later on anyway in John chapter 5. Go with me to John chapter 5. Look at the words of Jesus here. John chapter 5, verse 41. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Jesus is giving Warning to those seeking glory in their own religion, in their own doing. This is why he's telling the Pharisees, hey, you guys just want to be seen. Later on in the Gospels, we read that Pharisees want to pray and fast on the corners. And they want to tell everybody what they're doing so that they can receive the glory of man. And Jesus says, don't do that. Don't say, oh, I've been coming to church and I'm doing all this good stuff and, and I'm fasting today. It's interesting when I look on Facebook and, and it's, I guess it's the start of the new year and so everyone's fasting and it, and it becomes popular to let everyone know you're fasting. And, and it's like, I saw this one post that like really intrigued me and I was like, wow, man, 
this is this is another level of um, of vanity, I guess. But he, the guy's like, I'm fasting, and I've been fasting for for the past 24 hours. And then he says, I feel that I'm at another level. Is there anything that I can pray for you about? So because he's been fasting for 24 straight hours, he says that he wants to pray for people because he's at another level. And it's like this is the glory we want. We want people to be like. Wow, man, man, I can't even fast for two hours, man. I'm, I'm, I'm sitting in service right now and I'm hungry. Like, man, that guy, that guy's another level. My respects to that guy. Jesus is like, why are you seeking glory from man? Why don't you seek my glory? I give you God's glory. How are you going to compare God's glory to man's glory? We all seek it. And Jesus says, don't. He, Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 6. Do not seek glory from people. Even more clear. He gets the same teaching from Jesus Christ. Do not seek the glory from people. First of all, because only God deserves the glory. And only God can give the glory. When we get to heaven... It's not going to be, we're, we're not waiting to get cheered on by the people that are around us. We're not ready. We, we want God to say, come on in. I don't care if 20 other people are saying, you could do it. You could do it. But like, I don't care what you say. I want a God to say, come on in. If he doesn't say, come on in, it doesn't matter what everybody else says. Only God gives glory and only God gives us the salvation in his glory. Christ is this revelation of glory. That's why this is so important. That's why these, these verses are so important because now Christ, people see the glory of God in Jesus Christ now. It's on top of him. It's in him. He is this representation. And because we are united with Christ, this is what the book of Ephesus is all about, the book of Ephesians is about being united and one with Christ. What does that mean? That one day, my friends, you and I will also participate in this divine glory. Read with me. Read this. I want you guys to really know this. Go to Romans Being united with Christ means one day we will be sharing his glory. Romans chapter 8. We'll start off in verse 18. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Did you hear that? Everything that we're going through nowadays, all the suffering, all the crying, all the hard work, all the misunderstandings, all the times we say, God, why did this have to happen? All of that does not compare to the future glory that we will receive. Keep reading. Verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Friends, not even, not, not just us, even creation itself is seeking the glory of God, of one day being brought back to its original design. 
because you and I as the church of Jesus Christ are united with God means that we will one day share in this future glory with Him. You see, we can't share in that glory now because if we share in that glorious manifestation of God, it would be kind of like we being the glory of God in a sense of having that same essence like Jesus Christ. It isn't until we get to be with him in our glorious body that we will share that glory. Now, on the outset, the church does represent the glory of God, but we don't contain it in our essence because there's only one physical representation of the glory of God. And who is that? Monogenos. That's Jesus Christ. But one day, we will be called through this gospel to obtain the glory, as Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14. Jesus Christ carries this glory. Jesus Christ himself is this glory of God. I love when Paul says that in the face of Jesus Christ, we see the glory of God. It's the visible expression of God's glory in the sun. That's why we worship, friends. That's why we gather here to worship, to, to give glory to the only one that deserves the glory, which is Jesus Christ. That's why there's power in the name Jesus Christ. He is God's blessed glorious representation. And verse 14 contains more umph, if we can say it like that. Not only is Jesus Christ the glory of God manifested here on earth, but the ending of verse 14 is equally as important. Full of grace and truth. Once again, why is this important? Because all of these names all of these adjectives, all of these descriptors of Jesus Christ are God's. Jesus Christ has, is the tabernacle. Jesus Christ is the glory. Jesus Christ is grace and truth. What does that mean? Well, if we go back to the Old Testament, this grace and truth concept is found in God's hesed and God's emet, in God's graciousness and faithfulness to his covenant prophet promises. This is the title that is given to God in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Exodus, where God's loving kindness and unfailing faithfulness to his promise is seen throughout the entire Old Testament. And you and I have been witnesses to that because we've studied some of the Old Testament and how the people failed God, and still he was gracious, and still he was faithful. Because he's true. And so Jesus Christ now contains the title of God in grace and truth. He is this representation of God. This is what the Old Testament described as, the, as attributes of God, and it's now found in Jesus Christ. Go with me to verse 16. We're going to jump over verse 15 right now. We'll get to that at the end. Verse 16 and 17 says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. So what, what John is doing here is 
giving us this notion in these, first, in these four verses of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And then he brings in these contrasts. This contrast is in the middle of this passage because it's showing us the, the failures of Moses and the law and the greatness of God in his grace and truth. Verse 16 gives us this notion of fullness. We have, in verse 16, from his fullness, we have all received. What have we received? From his fullness. Did he only give us a little bit? Was he only sharing because he was afraid it was going to go away? Jesus gave everything to his fellow disciples and consequently to his church, complete fullness. And this is grace upon grace. The ESV, if you have the ESV like I have, it says we have received from his fullness grace upon grace. But there's various translations to, this, to these words, uh, especially in the Greek. There's this understanding of, of this preposition upon which is the Greek word anti, which is a preposition that usually means in contrast. So I prefer to use the translation that says in place of. And the reason why I choose to use it is because the rest of verse 17 shows us the answer. And so instead of saying grace upon grace, it should read, or we should understand it in the sense of grace in place of grace. You see, Christ gives us his fullness because he's God and he's not partial. Moses gave us partial grace. Moses gives us what God gave him, but Moses was not God. And this is, Moses is brought into the picture because everything we've been studying up until this point has been reminding us of the works of Moses, of, of Exodus and what God did in Moses' time. So Moses gives us partial grace because the, as we read in, in our scripture reading, Romans chapter 5, verses 18 through 21, the law only increased our trespasses. It was only because of the law that we understood that we were even worse sinners than, than before Moses gave us partial grace. Jesus gives us full grace. That's why the grace that God gave us in the Old Testament is enhanced and it's separated by the grace that God gives us in the New Testament through Jesus Christ. Once again, verse 17 says, the law was given through Moses. There's your answer. Well, if you say, well, why do you use that translation, Jonathan? Well, verse 17 itself is a descriptor. Law was given through Moses. Contrast, what does it say? Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Moses gave us the law, and that was God's grace because it showed us how to live before God. It showed the Old Testament saints how to live before God. But Jesus now, gives us grace and truth, the fullness of God in him in order for us to continuously live before God without sacrifices because now it's been completed in Jesus Christ. Jesus is our greater Moses. 
He is our fulfillment. He is the fullness. And, and the reason why this is important once more for us is because we don't have to accomplish our own works of law. We don't have to live ascetic lives to, to, cruci- to, to making our bodies suffer like, like, the, like the monks did or like the period of monasticism that we've had throughout all of church history where, where they had to whip themselves, where they had to suffer by not eating for days upon days and not drinking in order for them to feel right before God. We don't have to do that. It isn't works-based, our relationship with God. It's in Jesus Christ who is full of grace and truth. There is an obedience factor. There is a mortification of the flesh that you and I do, but it's not to work for our salvation. It's to show our salvation. So friends, we have this wonderful, complete fullness of grace in Jesus Christ because he carries the title God upon him. He is the representation of his glory. Now, how do we prove this? In this final verse, verse 15, sorry, I jumped around a lot and I got you guys kind of confused, but, but we, we did touch every single verse here. But this last verse that I want to use in, in the last part of this sermon is for the specific reason that John the Baptist, who in verse 15 says, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. So this is important because John the Baptist, known by Jesus' own very words as the greatest prophet who ever lived, understands his shortcomings when he compares himself to Christ. Even though he was first physically, six months before Jesus Christ, John says he is still greater. Now in antiquity, those who were first, those who were more ancient, were revered more, were giving more importance. But John himself realized that Jesus Christ that would come after him was the Messiah, was the glory of God. And so John knew how to submit himself and say, there's someone that's coming after me that is greater than I am. I will set myself aside in order for Christ to shine. And we're going to read that in the the rest of the, the Gospel of John. But this is important because it's his testimony. This is his visual, his physical testimony of the person of Jesus Christ. He is the one that's giving us a clear witness of who the person Jesus Christ was. It's it's that car scene again. It's that car scene accident where 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 you get in an accident and no one else no one else is there except for one guy that's standing in the corner who had his iPhone out and saw the whole thing and recorded the whole thing and he said, "Bro, it's your fault." I saw it, man, and I got it recorded. You can't say anything against it. That's the witness of Jesus Christ in John. John is the true witness to this person of Jesus Christ. And not only that, but his witness, his testimony. What does it say in verse 15? I love this. John bore witness about him and cried out. 
He spoke boldly about the person of Jesus Christ, and they took his head for it. He was not afraid. But when these verbs are put together of crying out and being a witness, it becomes what the, Greeks, uh, the, the Greek language calls a historic present, which means, basically, that what was happening here is still continuing in our day. John gives us a clear example of the testimony of Jesus Christ that it should not stop. Friends, whose job is it now to make Jesus Christ known on earth? It's our job. It's the church's job to explain to, to show, to exposit, to interpret Scripture to a world that is completely against it. And we do this with grace and truth, and we do this because we are united with Christ. We are his people, we are his church, and we are on mission to preach Jesus Christ the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name, and we all say, amen. Let's stand up this morning.